Uh, good morning, everybody. How are you doing? Pretty good? Okay. Well, it is. I'm Andrew, by the way, and I'm, I'm on staff, and it's, it's great to be here with you. And it's, it is an exciting Sunday for a lot of reasons. Um, our new student space, our new cafe, and uh, believe it or not, chapter 13, which we just heard read, the beginning of it, is the last chapter of the book of Hebrews. So if you've been with us since January, it's actually when we started working through the book of Hebrews. And, and personally, I think Hebrews is one of the hardest books to understand. So uh, congratulations to you if you've been here that whole time. Way to go. Uh, this is, so we, we actually only have three more Sundays on the book of Hebrews. And uh, if you remember when we started, and we've said it throughout the series, that the, the book of Hebrews, which is actually, we're pretty sure, a sermon, a transcript of a sermon uh, that was given to a congregation in the, in the first century, um, it was given to a group of people who were just absolutely exhausted. Uh, they were beaten down by life. They were very discouraged. They were facing incredible challenges to their faith. We don't know exactly what all those were. Uh, and they were tempted to give up. They were tempted to turn back to an old way of life, an easier way of life, uh, before they followed Jesus. And uh, the preacher here, for 12 chapters, at almost every turn, he's been urging them, he's been arguing with them, he's been convincing them that Jesus' way is better than any other way of life. No matter how discouraged you feel, no matter what challenges face you. And again, for the past 12 chapters, he's shown over and over and over again how Jesus makes other ways of life, he makes other modes of religious devotion totally obsolete. He is, the, he is the true and better temple where God meets humanity. He's the true and better sacrifice where we get access to God. He's the true and better uh, mediator or advocate uh, of a new covenant, of a new relationship with God. And like any good preacher, after all, after all of that, he saves the application uh, for last. And that's chapter 13. So after everything you've heard, now that uh, you've heard everything God has accomplished in Christ, uh, here's how you should respond. That's kind of what the author's saying. And, and there's a word for this response. Uh, there's a word we use for our response to something God has done, to God's action in our lives. And that word is worship. Worship. And the author right here is saying, here's what Christian worship is now. Uh, in light of everything that's been said, in light of everything I've, uh, I've been preaching to you, here's what worship looks like. And that's why we started our reading in chapter 12, verses 28 and 29. And, and there it says, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship. And then he, in chapter 13, begins to describe exactly what acceptable worship is. Now, it's hard for us to grasp this, but uh, for, for an ancient listener to this sermon, this sermon has been pretty shocking so far. And uh, the, reason, the preacher has just debunked everything that an ancient pers person would have understood to be worship. He said, no, 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 you don't do that anymore. And uh, so you have to think of this listener is thinking, so I can't worship with an offering at the temple. You've said Jesus is the new temple. I can't, there's no specific offering I can give uh, to worship God. Uh, I can't worship by asking a priest to pray for me, right? Jesus is my priest. So, so what in the world do I do now? How, how do I, certainly God wants something from me is the question they, they probably were asking themselves. And the preacher's response in chapter 13 is quite surprising. Uh, in fact, it's, it's, it's revolutionary when you truly grasp it. it he, he will essentially say, no, God doesn't want something from you. He, he, God doesn't want goats and sheep and grain. He doesn't want something from you. He wants you. He wants everything from you. Everything. This whole point, worship, is no longer about devoting something to God, but everything to God. Now, that's still, if you think about it, a radical principle today. There's a radical difference 
in Christian worship today. When you mention the word worship, for the most part, people still think of a building or a time of the week or a ceremony of some kind or a ritual. And even most Christians, even most people who, who regularly attend church, if you mention that word worship, we, we tend to think of worship as an hour of the week on Sunday morning. It's 10% of my paycheck. It's when I listen to Caleb on my drive to work, right? And it's essentially the same attitude the ancients had in worship, which is where does, where does God fit into everything else I'm doing? And what the preacher is teaching us is that God did not send his son Jesus to get some of your time and some of your money and some of your attention and some of your decisions. Uh, he came for all of it. He came for every, every part of it. And to truly worship God in, in the Christian sense is to allow him to define all of your life, to define everything you are and everything you have and everything you do. So if you think about it, the very heart of Christian worship is the idea that nothing you have and nothing you are and nothing you do is yours. It's not yours. Absolutely none of it belongs to you. Worship is not just a time of the week. It's more than that. It's not just a place that you go. It's not a feeling that you get when you sing a certain song. It's not when you put your hands in the air when you're, when you're singing. It's not when you close your eyes. It's not when you try to clap on rhythm like I do. Um, it's not all these things we often think of. It, worship is a reckless abandon to God and his definition of everything in your life. That's worship. And the preacher will summarize that idea in three specific ways in chapter 13. There are three key things that when you worship God are no longer your own, they are no longer defined by you, they are no longer up to you. And if you want to experience what the author will say, if you want to experience authentic spirituality, if you want to experience God in your Christian life in the way you are meant to, if you want to respond rightly to him and what he has done, you have to surrender these three things. You have to surrender these three things. And here they are. And here's where we're going this morning. First, God wants, you, God wants to define your family. He wants to define your most intimate relationships. And, and I'll, we'll explain what these are as we go forward. God wants to define your family. Two, God wants to define your sexuality. And three, God wants to define your possessions, your money. Your, so family, sexuality, and money. So first, God wants to define your family. If you haven't turned to Hebrews 13 yet, you can do that now. If you don't know where it is, if you can find the book of Revelation at the very end of your Bible and turn back a few books, you will find the book of Hebrews chapter 13. So let's read the first three verses together of chapter 13. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Now let's stick with this first verse for just a minute. Let brotherly love continue is where he starts. Love each other like brothers and sisters. That's the idea. Now if you've been in church for a while, or if you've known Christians um, and heard them speak, <laughs> you've probably heard that statement before or something close to it, like we're all brothers and sisters in Christ. You've probably heard that before. Now that image, by the way, of, of a Christian family, of a family of people who respond to God in faith, uh, is, not a, is not a new idea to Hebrews. It's all over the New Testament. And actually, Jesus himself came up with the idea. In, in Matthew 12, there's a famous story of a time when Jesus was preaching, and someone came up to him and said, Rabbi, your, your mother and your brothers are here to see you. And Jesus took the opportunity, he looked back at the crowd he was speaking to, and he said, who is my mother and who are my brothers? 
And Matthew says, and stretching out his hands toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. So Jesus and the author of Hebrews, along with them, are teaching that to truly worship God, the father implies that you commit to his family, that you commit to his household of faith. See, worship requires a new definition of family. Now, Jesus was not saying that biological families are unimportant. That's, that's not true at all. They're extremely important. But what he was saying is that everything that is true of a biological family must also be true now of your spiritual family. Because only that is authentic worship of God. That's what he's looking for. Now, this, this is almost a tired image in church, right? Oh, we're all brothers and sisters. We almost say it too much. But that's only because we, we've lost its radicalness because we've, we've failed to remember how truly radical that image is. Most of us, myself included, most of the time, have not thought through the implications of this image that every person who responds to God in faith is a sister and a brother. And that, it's, it's a radically intimate image. And uh, think about it. Your, your family knows everything about you. Your family knows everything. They know all the skeletons in the closet, Right? I mean, think of it this way. A lot of you have left the dating world behind for a while, but you'll get this. When you're, when you're first dating someone, uh, you, you put off introducing them to your family, right? As long as you possibly can. <laughs> That's like a big step in a relationship, right? It's okay, you've got to meet my family. Now, you do that because it could ruin the whole thing, and it's, you've got to be really serious about this person before you do that, before you risk that, because you're, you're saying, hey, I like this person. I want you to meet these people who've seen me running around naked, um, they, they remember the time I wet myself at Disney World. Uh, I mean, not me, but like it's, it's as if it were, right? It's not my story, but <laughs> your family knows everything about you. They know everything about you. There is no more intimate relationship than family, and you don't get to choose your family, right? Sometimes you don't like your family for periods of time. You're, you're angry at them. They're annoying, but they're still your family. You still love them. You still commit to them. You still help them. You share everything with your family. You share your time and your money and your affection and your patience with your family in a way that you don't with anyone else. To worship God is to allow him now to choose those people for you. Those people you stick with through everything, your family is now his church. This family is characterized not only by a deep intimacy, in worship to God, but by a radical hospitality. And you see that really in verse 2. The author says, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. we'll, We'll get to that angels piece in just a second. But the author is essentially saying, we need to be a family together that is incredibly intimate, but also constantly and intentionally open and welcoming of the stranger. And a stranger, that's a scary word, right? It's like, one of the first things you teach your kids is don't talk to strangers. You just hear it and, and you kind of cringe. But we use that word for people we don't know, for people that may be threatening to us because we don't understand them. But to worship God, our, our family needs to be a place that accepts all kinds of different people. People uh, that, that need a safe place, right? That need a family. When I was growing up, um, I remember there was a family in my neighborhood. The Amboard family was their last name. And I, I don't think their door, their front door was ever locked at any point that I, that I remember. And uh, 
there were always just these random kids running around their house. Um, but anything in the fridge was fair game when you were there, and uh, the, the PlayStation or whatever was always on, and you could always... It's just a, it was this fun house to be in as a kid. Uh, did you ever, when you grew up, did you ever have a family like that in your neighborhood? Um, it's like you, you, you weren't a member of their family, but you never would have known that by the way they treated you. When you contemplated running away because your parents had made you mad or were punishing you, right? That was the first family you thought of of running away to. Um, everything they had was yours. No strings attached. Free of charge. See, that, that's the picture here. That's, that's the kind of family God wants in our neighborhood. That's the worship that he wants. He wants our resources, our space, our vocational skill, our relationships for other people, for strangers, for people who maybe don't fit in, for people who, who maybe don't talk or think or act or look like we do. Okay, that's, that's the Christian family. And the final image we get of this new family, it's, it's intimate, it's, it's open, it's hospitable, but it's also this picture of solidarity or of unity. It's a radical solidarity with one another, and you see this really in verse 3. The author says, Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body, which is another way of saying you also could be mistreated. You also are, are vulnerable to that. And this word remember at the beginning, remember those in prison, it's not just a cognitive thing that we often, in English, we, that's what we think of. It's, it's, it implies to think about and to take action toward helping this person, to remember them. To remember especially those who are vulnerable, people who are in prison or people who are mistreated. And you could, you could translate that word oppressed, people who are oppressed. And that in and of itself is, was a radical idea, to have a community of people committed to the oppressed and, and the vulnerable but what's even more shocking is the motivation for why we should care for those people. The author says, as if you are in prison and as if you are being oppressed, show mercy to these people. And in God's definition of a worshiping family, your problems must become my problems. Your needs become my needs. Your shame becomes my shame. Your loss becomes my loss. And Lucian was a pagan philosopher of the second century. He was by no means sympathetic to the Christian faith, was not a Christian. Uh, but he, even he understood and, and witnessed the radical nature of the solidarity of the Christian family. And he, he wrote an account that we have of when a prominent, he's describing this new religion called Christianity. Um, and there was a prominent Christian in his city who was arrested. And his, name, his Christian's name was Proteus. And Lucian described how uh, when attempts to have their Christian brother released failed, certain Christian leaders, after bribing the guards, slept inside Proteus' cell with him at night. So they paid a guard to, have, to get into the prison cell with their brother to stay with him. Can you imagine doing that? I mean, some of us would pay money to not be in a community group with, with another person, right? I mean... <laughs> Can you imagine paying money to be in prison with someone? Can you imagine being, staying up late with them and calming their fears because they're terrified? Can you imagine going to their home and taking care of it, paying their bills while they're gone, taking care of their family? You would, you would only do something like that for family, right? And that's the point. A family like that, intimate, welcoming, and unified, is, is the kind of worship God is saying, I want that. And he chooses those people. He defines how we treat each other. We don't do that.
And so the first question we need to wrestle with together is, is this. Is this your family or are you looking for something easier? Is this your family? And I, I get it. Some of you are, are maybe like brand new today and I'm like proposing to you on a first date. So I, I understand that we're all in a, we're all in a different place uh, in, in how we experience this community. That, and that's great. That's fair. Um, but here's the thing. We should all be moving closer to one another. We should all be on a trajectory toward this kind of new family. We're all going to be in a different place. But are we moving in the same direction? Are you moving closer in or are you standing pat? Do you feel, feel yourself investing more in the people around you that you know or are you hedging your bets with them? So we, I know we've been talking a lot about Christian community during this series, because, but it is so critical not only now to the Christian life, which we've talked about, but to Christian worship. There's no separating the two. And the author referenced in verse 2 the story of angels, right? Entertaining angels without knowing it. That's a reference to Abraham and Sarah, uh, which really in the Bible was the first family of God. It was Abraham and Sarah's family. And there's this story in Genesis where they invite in three strangers. They're they're living in the wilderness and these three strangers show up and they invite them into their home, into their tent. And they didn't realize it at the time, but these strangers were angels. They were envoys from God. They represented him. And uh, the reason the author brings up this story is to show that when God's family worships in radical intimacy with each other, in radical openness and hospitality, in radical solidarity and unity, God shows up in their midst. He shows up. That's the kind of family that receives God, sometimes without even knowing it. In the midst of taking care of one another, in the midst of taking care of strangers, in the, in the midst of, of connecting as brothers and sisters, in the midst of sharing one another's burdens, our needs are often miraculously taken care of because God just shows up. Because that's acceptable worship to God. That's what he's looking for. So is this increasingly more and more your family? And are you letting God's word define what that family looks like? But that's not all God wants from us in worship. He doesn't just want to define and create a new family uh, he wants to define our sexuality, one of the most deepest <laughs> personal parts of who we are. He says, I want to define that. And you see that in, in verse 4. He says, your sexuality is now a, an act of, of acceptable worship when you let me define it. He says, let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. Now, in a word, the author is saying Uh, No sex outside of marriage at all. That's the boundary he's putting in place. He's doing that really with two words. So first, no adultery. That is, if you are married, you should not be sleeping with someone who is not your spouse. And he also says no sexual immorality, which means even if you're not married, you should not be sleeping with anyone else. Sex is for marriage, period. And this is not, as, as our culture is often viewed it, this is not some arbitrary rule that God has put in place for the sake of rulemaking. Okay, God doesn't do that. God loves sex. He created it. It's his idea to be a reflection of the deep intimacy and commitment he makes to his people. It's supposed to be the ultimate picture that we have of self-giving love. Now, what that means is that when we sleep with whomever we want, whenever we want, we are throwing God's commitment to us back in his face. That's what's happening. 
The gospel shows us over and over that God would never commit himself to someone that he is not willing to die for. Okay, that's, that's the gospel. God does not commit to someone he is not willing to die for, that he is not willing to give up everything for. He is not that selfish to ask something of you without offering himself first. Therefore, none of us should be having sex with someone we are not willing to share everything with. Right? Our money, our children, our home. In other words, we should be married to them. That's what marriage is. If you aren't married to someone, you should not be sleeping with them because it is selfish. That's the biblical picture. It's a selfish act. It's all about meeting your needs without any commitment from you to that person. Of course, God doesn't want that for you. Of course, he doesn't want that for you. That's why God must define our sexuality. It's also why or how our sexuality can be a worshipful thing, whether you're married or you're single. It's why our sexuality, according to the passage, is always religious. It is always sacred to God. And you, you see that keep the marriage bed undefiled. Undefiled is, is a technical term used in, in temple worship. This, it, was, it was used to describe an offering you would put on the altar to worship God. And, and the, the author saying your sexuality can be put on the altar of God to worship him if you let him define it. And that flies in the face of every major cultural assumption that we encounter in our time about what sex is. Most people think that uh, their sexuality has no spiritual or moral consequence, that it's a neutral thing. That is not true for God's family. It's not true. If you want to worship God, the creator of sex, you need to let him define the terms. And our culture also tends to view sex as a private thing. And uh, kind of the mantra is, you should be able to do with your sexuality whatever you want. It, should, it, it shouldn't matter to anyone else what you, what you choose to do. And again, if you want to worship God on his terms, this is simply not true. What we do with sex always impacts the whole community. It does. Remember, the book of Hebrews was not a personal note written between fr- friends when, when he talks about sex. It's not a personal note. It is a public address to an entire church and then circulated to who knows how many other churches because sexuality is a personal thing which means we shouldn't go about talking, oversharing, and flaunting it, but it is not a private thing. It affects not only our relationship with God, but with one another. It does. Author Wendell Berry, he gets it right when he says, sex, like any other necessary, precious, and volatile power that is commonly held by all, is everybody's business. And if you've had the experience or proximity to a marriage that has fallen apart because of sex, or a scandal that has destroyed a church, or a business because of sex, or a family that is disintegrated, or children have been abused because of sex, then you know this is true. Our sexuality is not a private thing. It affects everyone. It affects all of God's family, and it is deeply spiritual, and it is deeply moral. And it can be a source of incredible worship to God, the creator of sex, and the husband to his church, or it can be a source of incredible destructive evil. And I don't need to describe what that looks like. You know what that looks like. So the next question we need to ask ourselves is this. Is is our sexuality a gift to our community, or is it a poison to our community? Does God have the final word on my sexuality, or or do I? That's your choice. 
your sex life, your chastity, your purity, your commitment to your spouse, the way you treat your wife, the way you love your husband, the way you treat the opposite gender is either a divine gift to me, your brother in Christ, or it is a hellish poison to this whole community. It's either an offering to God or an offering to yourself at the expense of other people. Okay, that's it. And I just want to say, I understand that sex is a very difficult and complicated subject. It's very personal. It's very broken. And everyone here, everyone here comes with baggage when it comes to this. We all need God's incredible grace in our lives in this area. And God, yes, is calling us to a higher and better use of our sexuality, but there is always, always, always redemption possible wherever we find ourselves today. Always. That's the good news that we cling to, right? In every area of life. But, and don't miss this, redemption and worship in every case requires giving God access and giving him permission to every part of your life. That's the deal. If we want to worship God acceptably, we must let him and not our opinion and not our baggage and not our culture define our sexuality. Last thing God wants access to that we must give him more and more of to worship him is our money. And you see this in verse 5. Keep your life free from the love of money. And be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Now, this warning about the love of money is all over the Bible. Jesus talks more about money and how it relates to your worship than almost anything else he talks about. Jesus is always linking faith and money. And in fact, several times throughout the gospel, someone will come up to Jesus and ask him a, a religious question. Something like, uh, how do I inherit eternal life? Or, or what, how, what, what does it look like to obey God rightly? Or how do I, how do I follow you? And Jesus, uh, in almost every case, responds, uh, including someone's financial situation. He says, go, sell what you have, and follow me. A lot. It's because Jesus knew, and the Bible knows, and our passage is teaching, that there is no more accurate test of the heart than money. Perhaps more than anything else in our lives, money gives us a picture into what the heart is truly after. And notice, money is not the problem. The love of money is. If money is all you want, if you, if you design your life around the pursuit of money, it will, it will take everything from you. Everything. It will take your relationships. It will take your power. It will take your time. It will take your energy. And you see, you can't serve, you cannot worship God and money because God and the love of money are both after the same thing. They both want your heart. And again, God isn't after your money to, to punish you or to make you feel guilty or to test your allegiance. Money, just like sex, is a very powerful gift that can either enhance your community or can destroy your community and you. And most of the world, frankly, if, you, if, you're, if you've paid attention, does not keep itself from the love of money. Instead, many people live as if money is the answer to the contented life. Just write just a little bit more, and then I'll be happy. Just a little bit more, and then I'll feel secure. The problem is that the worship of money, the love of money, never leads to a more fulfilled life. We've basically proven that. There was recently a Wall Street Journal article published, and it was called, Don't Envy the Super Rich, They're Miserable. Yeah, right? It's like, I don't even need to explain what the article's about with a title like that. Um, but just for the sake of clarity... Um, it, this was the result of a survey of 120 people who were worth 25 million or more. 
And over and over again, you can read the quotes of the people who were surveyed. Uh, the people that we would consider to be very wealthy lamented that despite their money, many were just as unhappy as they were when they had less. Many noted increased strain on relationships and family dynamics because of their financial situation, and almost all of them still had significant financial stress and concern. In other words, contentment has very little to do with lots and lots of money. That's not a Christian principle, okay? That's just reality. What is a Christian principle, and you see it in our text here, is that the truly contented life, the life free of the love of money and the worry of material, of, of material things, is the life that worships God. The only way to be free of the love of money is to worship God. It's the life that, put, that, that banks more on his promises of protection and provision over shifting financial circumstances. Or as the author puts it in verse 6, the contented life puts more stock in the following statement than in any financial portfolio. And the statement is, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. God is our helper, not money. God provides, God protects, God gives value, money fluctuates. God never changes. And the more we believe and hold on to and internalize that promise, the more we worship God with the gift of money, the more freedom we will experience from it. And when you're free from the love of money, money becomes a means to better your community. God, when he blesses you with money, and you see this all over Scripture, when he blesses someone with, with, with money, when you allow him to define what to do with that money, he empowers you to use it to bless a community of people. Authentic worship of God will always include our wallets, and until God has access to our money, we will find it very difficult to experience him and the life he designed for us to live. So we need to ask ourselves another question, which is, what do, what do we worship? Do we worship money, or do we worship God? And it's really just as simple as that. Do you worship money, or do you worship God? And do you spend more, do we spend more on our own entertainment and enjoyment every month than we do on our church family and on the vulnerable in our city and community? Or maybe we don't spend that much money on ourselves. Maybe you're kind of the opposite. We we just worry about money all the time. Uh, That's a love of money expressed in a different way. And uh, I'll be honest, um, Becca and I, we just bought a house which is like the most terrifying financial commitment that you can make. And uh, anytime you sign a piece of paper that lists 30 years of payment, you know you're making a big decision. Um, and you have to think twice about it. And uh, so Becca and I, we just signed that, that piece of paper. And it was a huge blessing to our family. And God intends it to be a blessing to our neighborhood. That's his design. But I still really struggle sometimes to see it that way. And this whole process of buying a home brought out a side of me that I didn't want to know was there. I, I'm not the kind of person that spends a ton of money on myself, but I am so stingy, you guys, so stingy. Uh, I won't even pay to cut my hair, right? I mean, it's obvious. And uh, every little, you know, throughout this process, every little expense made me so worried or so frustrated or so angry that I, had to, I found myself having to ask for forgiveness over and over and over again, not only from God, but from my poor wife who had to walk through this with me. And if I'm being really honest with you, there isn't a point in this sermon where I don't struggle, where I don't at times in my life, I don't want to let God define those things. Uh, there's nothing here that I've said that I think about myself and say, yeah, I've got that one covered, can check that off the list. Nothing here. 
And my hunch is that's where most of us are today. We want to worship. We want to live lives God is asking us to live. But despite our good intentions, there are just times where it's like, I don't, I don't want to like this person that I go to church with. Okay, I, I, just, I know we're family. I know this is a brother or sister, but I just don't feel like it. And there are times where it's, I don't want to be generous with my money. I just want to have a little bit more. And I want to feel good about that, right? You ever been there? So where do we get the power to worship God even when we do not feel like it? Even when it's difficult or it's painful? That happens too. And the answer to that question is actually here in the passage. It's probably the most important part of the whole passage. And you, we get the power to live a worshipful life by trusting more and more in the promise of verse 5, which is this, I, the Lord will never leave you nor forsake you. Now, that's almost weak in English. It doesn't sound very strong. In the original language, the negative particle appears five times. So here's the sense the original hearers got when they heard this preached. I will never, ever, 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 ever leave you nor forsake you. I will never abandon you. I will never ignore you. I will never leave you. Which is all, of course, when you really break it down, another way of God to say, you now have all of me. Everything I have is yours. God wants, to give, wants us to give him everything. He wants us to give, us, give him everything in a way that sometimes is scary or frustrating or confusing. But you, have you ever loved someone with all your heart and demanded less from them? Do you look at your spouse and your children? Do you look at the people that you are closest with and wish you had less time with them? Wish you knew them a little bit less than you do now? Do you ever, I mean, of course not. You want more. You want more of those people that you love because that's what love is, right? Do you realize God loves you like that only a thousand times more? Of course he wants everything from you. He wants you. That's what this whole thing has been about. And do you realize that before God ever wanted something from you, he gave you everything he had? You didn't even know it at the time, but he did. There's nothing God has asked of us that he has not already given to us in his son, Jesus Christ. That's been the message of the book of Hebrews. Jesus was forsaken by his own father on the cross. That's what he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that we could worship God in a new family together. Jesus was tempted in every way that we are, in every way it means to be human, including in his sexuality, so that we might be pure before God. Jesus emptied himself of all glory and fame and status and wealth, wealth that we cannot even fathom, so that we might be made rich in him. And when we truly grasp what God has done to woo us to himself, then committing to our family of faith giving over to him our most personal struggles, giving him access to everything that we have, worshiping him in the way he has always wanted becomes so much more understandable, doesn't it? And there's nothing God demands of us that he will not give back a hundredfold. That's the promise of the gospel. And it was Martin Luther, uh, the theologian, who put it this way, and I can't think of a better way to end this sermon. He said, I have held many things in my hands in my life, and I've lost them all. But whatever I have placed in God's hands, that I still possess. 
The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. He will never, ever, ever leave us or forsake us. Let's pray. Father, give us strength to worship you with everything we are and everything we have and everything we do. Give us the wisdom and strength to obey you in all things, to trust you in all things, even when it is difficult and even when we don't understand. By your spirit, make us a new family together, a family that worships you and how we treat each other, how we love each other and how we support each other. And remind us always of your son's sacrifice, especially when we are tempted to give up. Because of his sacrifice, we know that all that is yours, we, you gladly share with us. We pray this in his name. Amen.